But we are in the book of Galatians. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, let's open up our Bibles. If you have one, uh, if you got an app, um, however it works for you, um, let's go to the book of Galatians in the New Testament. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a row near you uh, where you can ask a neighbor for one. If you don't own one, we would love to give it to you as a gift. We believe the Bible is God's word and precious in so many ways. And so um, we will be spending uh, our focus time today in the book of Galatians, verses 15 through 21. For those of you who are guests, we just take books of the Bible and we work our way through them, allowing the Bible to kind of dictate both direction and topic that we will uh, discuss. And so we have gone through chapters 1 and 2, and we find ourselves at the end of chapter 2 today. So what I'll do is I'll read in its entirety verses 15 through 21, the focus of what we're looking at, and then I will pray. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a sinner or a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, I ask, I ask that you would comfort the weary, that you would uphold the weak. I ask, O oh God, that you would encourage the faint-hearted, you would admonish the unruly, most of all, you would show off your glory. We need you. We don't need fancy speaking. We don't need to make sure we leave here with a laugh. We don't need just simple healing. We need healing from you. We need you to peer into our hearts and to change us from the inside out. We need you. Come near and to change. And so, Father, in this moment, I ask for a spirit of humility, a spirit of attentiveness, and a great sense of your might and power and goodness and love. Show us in this moment you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this week, 
I dove back in to prepare this message. Now, last week I had about half of this message prepared, and then all of these hurricane warnings looked like something might go sideways, and so I ended up with about 36 hours uh, before Sunday that I prepared a totally different message, and that's what I did last week. So this week I dive back in, and I kind of shake the dust off, you know, few days old dust, um, on what I had written before, and my experience led me to ask questions about how you and I come to Bible passages. So you can sit here and you read this passage, and as I read it, it could have been like water to a thirsty soul. For some of you hearing this passage, it could have been this massive sense of encouragement and excitement and a reminder of God's justification of you by faith alone. And there could have been a welling up in your heart that when that happens, God draws near and he lives inside of you. And, and that just wrecks you in a beautiful way and you are filled to the brim, so to speak. That was not my experience when I opened up the passage this week. On the contrary, I read it, and it was almost like I was flatlined, just very little to any feeling. Then I read through my outline, which at the time seemed remarkable. <laughs> I looked back at it, and I was like, what did that mean? Like, I didn't even understand what I had written down. And so then I'm in a crisis. I didn't feel this, you know... 90 out of 100 kind of moment with the Lord, and I didn't understand what I had written. I felt like I was starting over, and it reminded me of how you might feel today. You heard the text, but it didn't mean a ton. You came more weary than you came warm. You came more worried about your circumstances, then you came refreshed by the fact that sinners are justified by faith alone. And although those beautiful words, sinners justified by faith alone, are the gospel, the gospel seems like a message that was back here, and your life is here, and we're looking at a gap. What does it look like? to experience this God who says he lives inside of me. And so I was reminded, either we need our warmth stoked even hotter, or if we're cold, we need to trust that really only time in God's word and the humility of being a listener and believing that God will use his word to change hearts that's our only hope for this moment. So, I don't look at my creativity as your hope today. I look at God's Word and His Holy Spirit. So, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at three things. We're going to start in the middle of the passage, go back to the beginning of the passage, and then go to the end of the passage. The first thing, the whole law or whole grace. You choose. Number two, nothing but Jesus to make me whole. And number three, all of Christ has all of me. 
No middle ground. And so, let's look at it together. Now, it begins almost in the middle of a story in verse 15. The whole law or whole grace you choose. Verse 15 says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. It's like you start in the middle of a story and you do. Because the story starts back in verse 11. And I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version. Even though it's only like three or four verses. The Cliff Notes version is there's a guy named Cephas. Also known aka Peter. And as Peter is found eating at the lunchroom table with people who bear the label of Gentiles. That is anybody who is a non-Jew. He's throwing down some pork. The reason we know that. Is not because it tells us there, because that was the major dividing line when it came to eating a meal. Gentiles threw down pork. Jews said, no, your diet better be kosher. That's what the Mosaic law tells us. And yet, there was this remarkable thing. Peter experienced God coming to him and saying, all foods are clean, speaks the good news to Gentiles, non-Jews. They say, I trust in Jesus, and their lives are flipped upside down. They're made children, and now they're part of this church. So you've got these people who've been worshiping on Saturdays all their lives. They're Jews. And then you've got these people who haven't worshiped God at all, and now they're all slammed into one body. And as they're slammed into one body, and you've got all kinds of multi-ethnic tensions. FYI, note to self, the only way the church grew into multi-ethnicity was persecution in Acts chapter 8. The church tried to stay mono-ethnic early in its days. Persecution comes, it shifts, and now it slams all kinds of cultures together. So when we make it our ambition to pursue multi-ethnicity, you better believe it's going to hurt. But now, they've all collided. And as they're sitting there, Peter, having heard from the Lord, having experienced God changing these Gentiles into children, he's eating with them. All foods are clean. They're throwing down some pork, enjoying it. Then visitors from Jerusalem come, and they're over here. Paul had already been confronted by those who were called Judaizers. Judaizers are saying, yeah, Jesus' death was good, but you also got to add the Mosaic law in order to be accepted. You got to add circumcision. You got to add diet. You got to add marriage rituals. You got to add all these things in order to really be saved. So then these people show up and he didn't want to be critiqued anymore. And so it says, out of fear for this circumcision party, he changed tables. He shifted over and he went over to the, this table because Peter was a Jew. Let me tell you communicating with your actions or your words that conforming to any culture for acceptance with God that is out of step with the truth of the gospel. If you communicate that you must conform to any ethnic culture, any religious culture, in order to be accepted by God, you are out of step with the truth of the gospel because the only way you are accepted by God is by faith alone. Not by conforming to a certain culture. Not by adding circumcision and Jewish eating rituals and all kinds of marriage rites. That is not what justifies you, what saves you, what rescues you from your sin. 
And that's what Peter was communicating with his actions. He never said it. But with his actions of separating people, all of a sudden he communicated this. You over here will not be accepted by us over here until you conform to our culture. And by communicating that, not only does he separate people who are supposed to be together, he also communicates that God holds that requirement. And that you can only get to God by conforming to this culture and then you can be right with him. Paul says that is out of step with the truth of the gospel. You are saved not by doing what the law requires. You are saved by faith alone. By trusting in Jesus' finished work on your behalf. Anything else you try to smuggle in as a means to getting acceptance from a community and communicating that that's what it requires to get acceptance from God, that let them be accursed. May it not be. Let's just press on it a little bit harder. We try to communicate that there's a certain political party that's affiliated with biblical faithfulness. You are adding to the gospel. You try to communicate there is a certain way of worshiping, a certain worship style that is communicated in order for this to really be accepting. You are adding to the gospel. If you add that your culture's way of doing things is better than another culture's way of doing things, when it's just a cultural expression and it's not sin, you are adding to the gospel. When you are saying a certain way of doing schooling is the way to do schooling, you are adding to the gospel. When you say that, okay, the Bible says that Getting drunk is wrong. That's clear. Okay? But then there are some who are teetotalers and there are some who, okay, can drink in moderation. Oh my, I've just set off the whole building in flames. Now what are we doing with that kind of tension? The, the Bible says don't add anything to justification by faith. Nothing. Some of you are convinced tats are evil. Some of you are convinced that they're okay according to conscience. What are you going to do? Are you going to push everybody away? Or are we going to live on this one principle, justification by faith alone? What are we going to add? What are we going to add? It's really easy when we relegate it to Jews and Gentiles. Okay, I'm okay to eat pork and I don't deal with marital law things that they're putting up and I don't have kosher diet issues and I'm not trying to add circumstances. I'm good. What do we add? It is Jesus alone. Now, that's where we are. Paul says this then in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth. Paul and Peter were Jewish individuals. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We did not grow up in this pagan world. That's what, that's what the Jews would call Gentiles. They are Gentile sinners. Sinners, keep that in quotes. Yet Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Works of the law is doing what the law requires. You are not made right before God by doing what the law requires. Instead, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through what? Okay, that was horrible. Let's try it again. Verse 16 in the Bible. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through 
Hey, that was great. Through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Yes, that's right. That is what saves. And so he goes on to say this. Look at verse 17. This is why we're going to start in the middle. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. If we put all our chips in on faith alone and not the works of the law, if we say justification is by faith alone and not by works of the law, then we might be called sinners too, just like the Gentiles. Because we'll be eating at their table. We won't be adhering to all of these laws necessarily. Definitely not adhering to them for acceptance. So he says, but if our endeavor to be justified, I'm on verse 17. If our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Is he okay with sin? No, Jesus is not okay with sin. Okay, let's just put that to bed. Because, this is why, if I rebuild what I tore down, if I say that Jesus' sacrifice was enough, and then I try to add law to Jesus only, try to add all these extra things to Jesus only for fellowship with one another and with God, if I keep trying to add these things, if I rebuild what I tore down, that's the one who's the sinner, not the one who leans on justification by faith alone, but the one who adds. And now later on in Galatians, he's going to make it even more complicated. He's basically going to say that if you lean on just one small thing as necessary, church attendance, worshiping in a certain way, having a certain political party, if you lean on one certain thing as your grounds for justification, then you've got to do the whole law. For the Jews, that meant we have over 613 recorded Jewish laws in the scriptures, but we know it was more than that. So he's basically saying that if you're going to try to lean on just even one, you've got to do them all perfectly. Where do I get that? Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 says this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. He's basically saying the Old Testament tells us you've got to do it all. You won't be able to do it all. So therefore, you've got to live by faith. He goes on to repeat it in Galatians chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. Testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. If you lean on one thing, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Anything you add to justification by faith alone, you are severed from Christ. You are adding to the gospel. You have fallen away from grace. That's why he says in verse 21, look at it in the scriptures. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. 
For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I can add something to what Jesus did, then Jesus wasn't necessary. And then they might, you might you hear other religions say this. No, Jesus was good. He was a good teacher. He was a good foundation. But we've got to add more. Are we really going to say something so audaciously contrary to the Bible that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough? I've got to make up for what is lacking in him. Paul says, do not nullify the cross. The cross screams, we are guilty sinners. He's the only one that can fix the problem. So we cannot bring our messy, dirty, sinful lives into the grounds of our salvation. And we don't view them as messy and dirty and stinky. We view them as, I was really kind. I was better than my neighbor. I did a really good job. And therefore, because I am compassionate or I am kind, because I am wiser than this person next to me, then all of a sudden, I got something to add here to justification, to being made right. You're valuable. And God has given you all many gifts that you have, and they are to be celebrated in love. But remember, God is the origin, and none of those are the foundation. Of your justification. And so our forgetfulness of the wretchedness of our sin and our ability to think that we can smuggle it in, it reminds me of my kids' clothing. So when my kids were really little, and my youngest still does this every now and then, they get some clothes that they find as their favorites. Like, I really love these shorts and this shirt. And even though, by God's amazing mercy, they have drawers filled with all kinds of clothing, they want to wear this. And even though those clothes are standing up on their own in the corner because they smell so bad, I have literally had children because they've seen how this works. Dad, can I wear this? Drop it. No, son, that stinks. Okay. So now they have to retool things in their brain, okay? Okay, how can I get this on my body because I really like this clothing? Okay, so they beat me to the punch. Hey, Dad, can I wear this? It smells fine. And so they'll pick it up and they'll smell it, and then they put it on. Look at me, you know, and nobody wants to be anywhere near them. This is how we treat sin. We get our favorite sin, and we begin to say, it's not that bad. And then we start living in it and walking in it. Everybody else around can smell something's foul. We don't see it. And that's how we convince ourselves that we're wise enough. Our way is a better way. It's okay to add to what acceptance looks like in the family of God. Then eventually it begins to be added to what acceptance looks like with even God himself. We minimize our sin. Paul says, no way, no how. If it demanded the death of Jesus, your sin is atrocious. Tim Keller says this in his book, Reason for God. By the way, I found this quote. I have read the book, but I found this quote because 
a member in our church, was reading and praying, ran across this quote, and sent it to me as a means of encouragement. They sent it to me in June. And all of a sudden, it comes to my mind, I find it in my inbox. I just want you to know, sharing what God encourages you with matters. It might not matter that next day. It might not matter a week from now. It might be several months. But continue to share what God is doing in your life. That's why we gather. Here's a quote from Tim Keller on how we can subtly slide in to looking at sin and calling it okay, but all of a sudden, it's worse than we thought. It's a little bit longer of a quote, so stick with me, okay? Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God. In the nature of true virtue, one of the most profound treatises on social ethics ever written, Jonathan Edwards lays out how sin destroys the social fabric. So let's just start there. Sin destroys society. He argues, Jonathan Edwards, that human society is deeply fragmented when anything but God is our highest love. If our highest goal in life is the good of our family, then, says Edwards, we will tend to care less for other families. If our highest goal is the good of our nation, tribe, or race, then we will tend to be racist and nationalistic. If our ultimate goal in life is our own happiness, then we will put our own economic power and interests ahead of those others. Edwards concludes that only if God is our ultimate good and life center will we find our heart drawn out not only to people of all families, races, and classes, but to the whole world in general. Now, you thought the quote was long. It's still going on. How does this destruction of social relationships flow from sin, flow from these internal issues of sin? How does, how does it happen? If we get our very identity, he goes on to say, our sense of worth, from our political position, then politics is not really about politics. It's about us. Us being right, maybe. I'm adding this in. Continuing with the quote. Through our cause, we get a sense of, we, we are getting a self. We are getting our worth. That means we must despise or demonize the other position because then our worth is threatened. If we get our identity from our ethnicity and so, or socioeconomic status, then we have to feel superior to those other classes and races. If you are profoundly proud of being an open-minded, tolerant soul, you will be extremely indignant towards people you think are bigots. If you're a very moral person, you will feel very superior to people you think are licentious or living it up, however you define living it up. And so on. There is no way out of this conundrum. The more we love and identify deeply with our family, our class, our race, our religion, the harder it is not to feel superior or even hostile to other religions, races, etc. So racism, classism, and sexism are not matters of ignorance or lack of education. Here's the punchline. The real culture war is taking place inside our own disordered hearts. That's the greatest battle 
of America or of the globe. The real culture war is taking place inside our own disordered hearts, racked by inordinate desires for things that actually control us when we think we control them, that lead us to feel superior and exclude those without them, the very thing Peter was doing. And that failed to satisfy us even when we get what we wanted. I know it was long. But the idea is when we put our own desires, our own expressions at the center of our life and shift away from everything revolving around Jesus, we end up minimizing sin, we add to him, and we end up separating those who should be unified. Some of you in this room who are not followers of Jesus, What is your center? I promise you, anything other than Jesus will lead to your ultimate destruction. Yes, you will have pleasures. The Bible calls those fleeting pleasures. And some of you have experienced both the pleasure and you've experienced them running away. You've experienced the person who forgot you or let you down. You've experienced giving your heart to someone only to be betrayed by them. You've experienced giving yourself to a job only to not have it deliver. You've experienced thinking the home was going to satisfy and it didn't really satisfy. You just wanted more. You have experienced trying it. I'm telling you, Paul is telling you, the scriptures are telling you, Jesus must be at the center. Not to make light of it. But literally, this kind of image needs to be in your brain as it comes to Jesus not being at the center. Here, here's a video. Nice. Now watch this car. This is a problem right here. This next one I really like. Because he's got cones, so he's trying to show off his mad skills. And then... The wheels fall off. So, you know, check your axle before you start running through a cone race, right? So, what happens when things are not stably holding your life together? That's what happens. The tires roll off. The car can't move. There's this sense of if Jesus isn't central, your life will eventually break. And it will stop. Paul says it this way, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the devil, that is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is every single person's story before Jesus. Every one of us. Dead. I've used the image before. It's been used. I got it from someone else. Dead does not mean you are flailing in the water waiting on someone to throw you a life preserver. Dead means dead. At the bottom of the ocean, not able to move. That's death. 
There's no other poetic way to read death. You're dead. How in the world do you get out of the condition of dead because of your sins? How in the world do you go from passions for the world to passions for God? What happens? Sheer mercy. Those are the next words of the text. Ephesians chapter 4. When he goes on to say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he did something. He made us alive. He gave us a pulse with Christ. And therefore, because it took God to make dead hearts alive, it's by grace you have been saved. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible happens a few verses later. For by grace you have been saved. This is what? Not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, Galatians chapter 2, lest any of you should boast. Amen. Amen and amen. The heart begins to get a little warmer when you realize your sin is worse than you thought it was. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and it took an amazingly sovereign God to make your heart feel what it never felt before, to give you a sense of life, to give you a sense of hope, to make you even want. It is nothing less than supernatural that you would say, I cannot save myself. I am guilty and I need a Savior. And when you say that by simple faith alone, you are justified. So friends, you got to choose. You choose to lean on your own works, on your own way, you got to do it all and do it all perfectly. It's either whole law or it's whole grace. Nothing you can add. But it's your choice. So choose wisely. Second point. The third point are only applications to the first one. So don't panic. Nothing but Jesus to make me whole. This is the summary of justification. Faith in Jesus alone is the only way I can be made whole. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says this. For no human being will be, we use the word saved a lot. No human being will be saved. No human being will be rescued. No human being will be declared innocent. Declared righteous. No one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Verses 23 and 24 of Romans. Since all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. There is not one person on this planet that, is, that skips the all. Every single person is guilty. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then the only way they can be justified or declared righteous, declared not guilty, is by His grace as a gift. That's the only way. 
And so, let's follow the image. The language of justification is a courtroom image. It is a language that says, if you are justified, you are declared not guilty. You are declared righteous according to the law in a courtroom by a just judge. So, let's follow it. You're a thief. And in your hand, you have that very thing you had just stolen. And it was a sting operation. The cops are there in your hand, and they wrap it up so that it's stuck in your hand. You can't let go. In the shuffle and everything, your clothes were ripped. They immediately take you, and they shackle up your ankles and your wrists. And they say, we're going to court. In the meantime, the rest of the police were looking at the what? Some hundred witnesses. They quickly take a survey and they realize every single one of them testify that person stole that thing. They are guilty and they are all asked to come to court. So now in a matter of moments, you with tattered clothing, shackled hands and feet, you are ushered in with the very thing that you stole clenched to your fist. You cannot let it go. And now you're standing in a courtroom. The judge is famous for being just, for doing the right thing at all times. And you stand there. And the judge says to the witnesses, one by one, all 100, guilty, 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 guilty. You just take it. You just got to sit there, stuck in your hand. Now you're in there. And the judge looks at you and says, what do you have to say for yourself? Friends? There ain't not one thing you can say. Not one. What are you going to say? I didn't take it. It's in your hand. There's no fuzziness here. There's no appeal. There's no debate. The verdict is you are justly guilty. There is no comparison that's going to get you out of this. Oh, well, I didn't steal a car. Like it's, The point is, did you steal that? Are you guilty? Nothing. And he looks at you and says, what do you have to say for yourself? Here is how one gets rescued from that situation. We all should know the just thing is to say, guilty, punished. That's justice. That's justice. Now, God is a just judge. He can't just say, you didn't steal it. You got to be guilty. You were wrong. What do you say at that moment? The only thing you can say, I am guilty. 
I deserve to be punished. The only way I could get out of this is for sheer mercy. Now, what in the world is going to happen in that situation? In comes in the back of the courtroom a man. As he walks in, his clothes are amazing. He ends up taking these clothes and setting them here. He ends up taking your clothes and putting them on. He ends up taking your punishment and goes to jail for your crime. The judge says, that was my son and he did nothing wrong. He looks at you and he says, what do you have to say for yourself? And he says, I am guilty and I trust. I trust. And this is where the analogy can get a little funky, but here's what salvation looks like. It is this. I trust Jesus alone and I love him. And his sacrifice is the only thing that gets me out of this mess. And in that moment, by simple faith, not by you doing something, not by you saying, okay, well now I'm going to do community service. That's not going to get you out of this deal. I trust in his sacrifice in my stead. That's the only way the judge can be just, punishment rendered, and be merciful. And so what does he do? He takes those beautiful, pristine clothes and he puts them on you, the sinner. And he slams the gavel down and he says, not guilty. You're free to go. That is justification. Free in Christ. What you deserve is this stamp. You deserve the stamp on the sheets of paper that say rejected. That's what you deserve. You deserve to have the stamp over your life that says rejected. But instead, you have a stamp over your life that says approved, accepted, loved, sheer grace, sheer mercy. Friends, this is justification by faith alone. So when you read in verse 16 that it says this, yet we know that a person is not justified by trying to make up for his badness or her badness. No one is justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. How are you justified? By faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's get real technical, kind of short. What's justification mean? Brian Loritz says it this way. It is to be declared righteous, not to be made righteous. You're declared in a courtroom that you are righteous. You are justified. Sanctification is the process of you being made righteous. You being made into what you've already been declared to be. You follow? You're declared righteous. You are given the righteousness of Jesus. You are forgiven your sins. And now we live a life as children, God living inside of us, adopted into his family, a life of sanctification where we are being made into the very one he has declared us to be. I love this quote from Brian Loretz. 
He says, however, sanctification does not lead to sinless perfection. In this earth, we will never be perfect. We wait until we see the perfect and Jesus comes again and makes us new. Here's the quote. I got a little off. Sanctification does not lead to sinless perfection. We will never be perfect in this life. I will never be sinless. But the more I grow in Christ, I should sin less. Hear it loud. Because God has justified you and declared you not guilty, that does not mean you will be sinless in this life. But it does mean a justified person will walk in God's ways, and the more they look like him, they will sin less. And so we've got to ask ourselves, if you declare, and you're looking at your entire life, you declare that you are a follower of Jesus and your life looks no different at all, then you are not walking in what you have been declaring. You are probably not a follower of Jesus. I am not saying you must be perfect. I am not saying you will never sin. Don't put words in my mouth. All I'm saying is, the more you grow like Jesus, the general statement, you will sin less because the Spirit of God is alive. It doesn't mean you will not be a repeat offender. It doesn't mean that you won't struggle. Every one of us bring our imperfections into this room today, and God's grace is enough for that. I stand here by God's grace alone. I stand here as one who still sins, and I hate it, but I do. But I stand here as one who is justified, not by being perfect, but because Jesus was perfect in my place. I stand here as one who is justified by my simple trust in him alone. So, Wayne Grudem says this, Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which, one, he thinks of our sins as forgiven, and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And two, he declares us to be righteous in his sight. That is justification by faith alone. And so, that's when we come to this beautiful idea that when we are justified, all of Christ has all of me. Something remarkable happens when you say, I love Jesus and I trust him and I lean not on my ability to do for him. When you say that, verses 19 and following are true for you. For through the law, I died to the law. I realized that I could never be perfect and I died to that dream. So that I might actually live to God, which means everything I'm doing is all of grace. God is the center of my life. He goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Jesus who lives in me. That's what happens. And it happens in like a nanosecond. It's like, Jesus, I need you. I love you. He declares you not guilty. He comes and lives inside of your heart. You're declared to be a child, and you, he's with you for the rest of your life. It is no longer I who live, but Jesus. 
Jesus who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, as imperfect as it is, it's a fleshly life. I live by faith in the Son of God. And how do I have any courage to keep walking with Jesus even though I struggle? Because of what it says right here. He's the one who loves me and gave himself for me. So I press it home with Matthew chapter 11. Here's the invitation to the one who is not saved and the one who is saved alike. Jesus says this, come to me. Just come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. That means, are you wearied by your sin? Are you wearied of trying to live your life apart from Jesus? Come to him. Christian, are you wearied by subtly smuggling other things in to replace Jesus as the ultimate affection in your life? Are you wearied by the tasks of, the, of this world? Are you wearied by life? Are you wearied by suffering? Come to me. Everyone in the room then, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll refresh your soul. I'll give you joy and peace. I'll take up residence in your heart. I'll change you day by day, moment by moment from the inside out. The verse goes on to say, and this actually is kind of weird and crazy. How in the world do we get the rest? Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says. Do you know what this is? enslave yourself to me. That's what he says. Because, unlike popular opinion, we're always enslaved to something. You'll be enslaved to that gadget. You'll be enslaved to that relationship. You'll be enslaved to that bank account. You'll be enslaved to that position or approval or power or prestige. You'll be enslaved. You'll be enslaved. You'll be enslaved to yourself, your feelings and your thoughts. All those things are bad masters. They don't die for you, and they will let you down. And then when you call foul, they continue to mock you and tell you what a rotten person you are. Jesus is the opposite. When you fail him, he dies for you. And he continues to tell you how much he loves you and how he will never leave you. Take my yoke upon you, he says. Enslave yourself to me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm not mean. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Because my yoke, it's easy. The burden that you bear of being enslaved to me, that's light. Because I carry it for you. So as we go, why does justification matter? We're about ready to take the Lord's Supper. Why does justification matter? Justification by faith alone teaches you that you can be comfortable in your own skin. You don't have to become like somebody else to be saved. You don't have to conform to another culture. You just have to conform yourself to Jesus. You just have to say, I can't save myself. I need Jesus to rescue me, and he is my life. He is my all. And so, you are special. You are prized. You are loved. That's what God said when he sent his only son to die in your place. 
What about those who sin against you? How does justification matter? Justification matters because here's two. Uh, here's our here's our mindset. We either are very aware of our own sin or we're very aware of the sins of others. And both of them can make us paralyzed. Justification by faith alone matters right there. It matters because this is what happens. When you were a wretched sinner, God came to you, made your heart alive. You called out to him. He declared you not guilty and he made you a child. Now, do you really believe that if he did that, that now he's going to leave you alone and you're on your own to fend for yourself for the rest of your life? That's not what the Bible says. He says those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. It's an unbreakable chain. If he's not going to get you to the end, you can't trust him for nothing. But God keeps his word. That's what the cross proved. And so... When you look at your own sin and you feel hopeless, I keep messing up, I keep messing up, I keep messing up. He says, look at justification. You were made right by no ability of your own, but by simple faith. Look there, and if I did that hard thing, I will stay with you. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you look at that person and they don't seem to be changing, Remember, sanctification is a process. But many of us will look at other believers and write hopeless over the situation of reconciliation. Justification says, no, that's not right. Because that person has the shed blood of Jesus over them. They have been declared righteous. We must be patient with one another and continue to walk with each other. Justification matters. Dear friends, you are justified by faith alone. That is a gift of grace, not of works, lest any of us should boast. Boast only in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we grow weary of trying to do it all in order to be accepted. May we go, grow weary of minimizing our sin. And therefore, may we be set free to realize that we can confess our sins With this great sense of that does not change your love for us. Father, protect us from adding anything to our fellowship. Adding anything to our unity. Adding anything to the message that we are accepted in Jesus by simple faith alone. And so, Father, for those that are out in this room who are lost and don't know Christ. Those who have never surrendered their lives to Jesus, I pray right now through Kelly's testimony, through this preached word, you would overwhelm them with your love for them. And Father, would you cause hearts to topple, lives to surrender. Father, would you come? Would you save and set free those who are shackled by the chains of their own sins? Would you cause those who are leaning on everything else to be their Savior, would you cause them to grow weary with that so that they would look to you and they would call out to you and say, I am guilty. I need you to save me because I cannot. 
and she cannot or he cannot or that job cannot save me. Father, please, create humility in this room. Cause hearts to topple and save in this moment. Justify today sinners by grace through faith alone. You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to go clean yourself up or go through some religious act. Trust in Jesus. Call out to him. Come to him. All who are weary and heavy laden and he will give you rest. Declare your sin and trust in him. Now, if you have never trusted in Jesus, we're going to take of the Lord's Supper as a time of reflection. If you've never trusted in him, this meal is not for you because it's a declaration that you love him and even in your imperfection, you trust him to carry you along and you want to live for him. And so this meal is not for you, but this time is for you to call out to him. But if you are a child justified, given his righteousness, declared righteous, then you stand up on the merits of Jesus and you come and you get that bread in the cup. You confess any sin that is putting you at odds with another brother or sister, any sin that is where you have traded Jesus, you confess those to him. You don't have to be exhaustive in that. Just allow God to bring those things to mind and confess them and ask him to do a work of healing and change. It's what children do. They keep talking to their father. And so use this time as a means to not only talk to him and ask for forgiveness, but as a means of celebration to say, I live as one who is justified. I have been declared not guilty. Set hearts alive in this moment, I pray, oh Jesus. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take the Lord's Supper.